here's what I'd like to suggest today. Uh, first of all, the biological weapons threat is not new. It is not new. It is not new. We sometimes forget this in the flurry of conversation around this issue. This is not a new issue. Uh, we have seen as well uh, in the past states using VW. We've seen individuals using VW. What's different is we're seeing a proliferation by non-state actors for political purposes. So from the founding of the United States, we had people using plague for criminal purposes. We have a number of states, initially colonies, and then states that made it criminal to actually intentionally spread plague for criminal purposes. What's different is the proliferation to individuals who are bent on political aims, much as a state would be during warfare. So that's what we're seeing that's different. And I'll give you some examples. The Rajneeshi's use of salmonella, Elm Shinrikyo's use of sarin, uh, the Baker Wheeler, those are some individuals in the United States, their use of uh, ricin. We have uh, Larry Wayne Harris, his uh, basically acquisition, not use, but acquisition, attempted use of anthrax, also acquisition of plague. And then, of course, we have amerithrax, which is the FBI's investigation into the anthrax mailings. Um, at the same time, we also have seen scientific advances. For the past few years, I've been on the National Academy of Sciences Synthetic Biology uh, Project. It was a three-year project looking at SynBio. It's one step beyond what we think of as genetic engineering or biological weapons or bioengineering. Uh, synthetic biology is something entirely new. It's basically using uh, scientific processes to create new forms of life. Uh, and if you can think about this, it's just, it's extraordinary what you can do with SynBio. You can take a single cell on a rat's tail, on a male rat's tail, reduce it down to an egg, mate it with itself, and create an exact duplicate of that rat using synthetic biology. You can grow semiconductors using sludge, out using synthetic biology. The types of things you can do when you use biological processes as tools is something that we really have not gotten our heads around. Uh, that's new. All those scientific advances are new. Uh, simultaneously, we've seen growing concern with regard to pandemic disease. And that conversation has become wrapped up in the biological weapons conversation so that these two areas are increasingly linked and increasingly seen as a national security concern. Uh, we've seen, as a result, an explosion in statutory, regulatory, and policy documents around this issue. I'll talk about those. Um, and then I'll talk about the problem. It's, this is really a problem in many ways because a lot of these laws try to usurp the role of states, which affects federalism and constitutional issues in the United States. Uh, they push the military to act where maybe the military should not be acting. They divert resources, so you really end up with an issue of the tail wagging the dog. So if you have a public health system that's meant to address public health crises and you're aiming for the high consequence, low probability event and all your resources are going to that, then the types of diseases that actually need more attention and aren't as pressing in some ways as national security concerns, those diseases and those epidemiological systems go untreated. And so what we're seeing in the United States is a shifting of resources away from public health and towards the national security infrastructure. And I would say that's a very bad thing uh, that we're seeing in the United States. Um, it's my basic argument. Okay. So let's go ahead and, and feel free to argue back. Like this is, I like a good debate. All right. Um, so let's uh, talk first about biowarfare. All right. So biowarfare is not a new idea. During World War I, uh, Germany attacked British troops using chlorine. Uh, there were thousands of soldiers who suffered chemical burns. They died during the war. So uh, Germany also used mustard gas. They used uh, phosgene. Uh, Lord Kitchener, who was Britain's Secretary of State uh, for war, he demanded an immediate response to this. So in 1916, they constructed Porton Down in the UK. Uh, this 
was a research facility to basically look at defensive and offensive use of uh, chemical weapons. Following the Spanish flu, 1921 to 1922, Lord Hankey was convinced that this was actually a biological weapons attack launched against the United Kingdom. Now, I found this out. I, I actually spent about a year in the archives in London doing research into their biological weapons program and looking at exactly how it developed there. They were absolutely convinced this was a BW attack, and therefore they had to develop biological weapons in response. Of course, it turns out the Spanish flu was actually, it originated in Kansas. By the way, you know, every country calls it something else. It originates in another. And disease never originates here. It always originates somewhere else, no matter what country you are. Well, it turns out it actually came from Kansas, um, but we call it the Spanish flu as well. Uh, it was naturally occurring. This was, this was actually not a biological weapon. However, it initiated this huge program in the UK focused on biological weapons. And in the archives, I found all these references to how biological weapons were more humane than guns and bullets. Because with disease, people had a fighting chance. You could fight off the disease. But a gun or a bullet, you didn't have that same opportunity. And so the moral calculus was that BW was more moral than guns and, and basically explosive devices. Now, the United Kingdom subsequently carried out extensive testing, particularly of anthrax, uh, both at Porton Down and on Grunard Island off Scotland. Uh, often, the anthrax made it to the mainland. There were a number of deaths that were caused by this. And in the files, you would see a little note saying, uh, well, put an article in the press saying we can't be responsible for every Greek ship that throws a diseased cow overboard. And then at the bottom, I found this one that said, P.S., make reparations after the war. So there was no evidence that they actually did make reparations. A number of people uh, died uh, just, off the co just on the coastline of Scotland by Grinard Island. Uh, the United Kingdom also looked into using biological weapons against livestock. So these are cattle cake stacked up here. They actually had about three and a half million cattle cakes laced with anthrax at Porton Down. Uh, they were going to drop them on farms in Germany. They also developed a human anthrax bomb. They made preparation to order more than a million casings for bombs from the United States. I found the paper going to Churchill requesting uh, that this uh, purchase be made, and Churchill wrote on it, not on my watch. He killed the BW anthrax bombs just single-handedly when it finally made it to him. He actually did not know that there was a BW program underway until it was time to order the casings from the United States, and they briefed him, and he said, absolutely not. We're not going to have biological weapons, and that's what stopped the anthrax bombs. In 1972, the UK signed the Biological Weapons Convention. Now, in the interim, the UK, the US, and Canada all worked very, very closely together. So at first, when I was in the UK, I was so impressed that they had all of our plans in Fort Detrick, all of our experiments. I thought, geez, MI6 is really good. How did they get all of this information? And then I realized we gave it to them. We actually had Brit British uh, um, uh, scientists, Canadian scientists, and American scientists all working together down in the Caribbean, over in uh, the UK, up in Scotland, and in Canada as well. Uh, so there's a great book, by the way, uh, on the Canadian side for the Canadians here, if you're interested, called Pathogens for War. It just came out fairly recently. It was in 2013. It's a great account of the Canadian BW program. Uh, so what was happening in Canada? Well, in 1941, uh, the British and the Canadians uh, started testing chemical warheads in southern Alberta. It's now Canadian uh, Forces Base Suffield, C uh, CFB uh, Suffield. Um, by 1944, it was being used to test weapons using uh, brucellosis and tularemia as well. 
Now, it was a British base at the time. It was eventually turned over to Canada. They continued the testing. The first biological weapons lab in Canada was in 1942. It was on an island, Grosse Ile, near Quebec City. It's in the St. Lawrence River, part of like 20 or 21 different islands in the St. Lawrence River. Uh, that was where the lab was. Uh, Canadian scientists were as well involved in the U.S. program, uh, very, very much involved in the U.S. program, and they stored some of our nerve gas at some of these sites up in Canada. Uh, since 1945, there have been uh, uh, live biological weapons and chemicals used in about 14 trials in Canada involving about 712 volunteers. People volunteered to see the effects of the weapons on them. Uh, the UK did the same thing. They eventually paid 3 million uh, Great British pounds and pounds, 3 million pounds sterling to the volunteers. Uh, the United States experimented on about 6,000 people. Uh, to this day, they can claim full benefits for any injuries suffered as a result of essentially being human tests, uh, testing, um, uh, testing individuals for these weapons. Project 112 is a, is a good example. It was named because there were 150 projects. Project 112 actually dropped a number of agents um, on individuals who then uh, suffered severe medical problems from these experiments. The U.S. program was, of course, quite extensive. Uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt formally started the biological weapons program about the same time the Canadian programs were going. In 1943, we formally started our program. Uh, over the next few decades, uh, we weaponized and stockpiled anthrax, tularemia, brucellosis, Q fever, uh, Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, that's VEE virus, uh, botuliz uh, botulinum uh, toxin, and uh, staphylococcal enteroxin B. We field tested it at times on unconsenting individuals. They did not know that we were field testing it uh, on them. And in 1969, Nixon ended the offensive aspects of our BW program. In 1975, we finally ratified uh, not just the Biological Weapons Convention, but the 1925 Geneva Protocol, which had prohibited the use of bacteriological warfare. Now, there were other countries as well who were in the game. As, we, as many of you will know, Russia was also involved uh, on Vaz, uh, Vazras Denier, which is an island um, in the Aral Sea, uh, shown here. I put a little map of it up there. Uh, they also uh, conducted a biological weapons program in 1936, so their program started a little bit before either the United States or Canada or the UK's program really kind of started to gain speed. Um, they actually started using this island. They also included in their studies anthrax, tularemia, brucellosis, plague, typhus, Q fever, smallpox, botulinum toxin, and VEE. Those were part of theirs. Uh, they were missing uh, staphylococcal enteroxin B, which we actually used, but they also added plague, typhus, and smallpox uh, to their uh, biological weapons. And this, this will matter later because these are the weapons that we're now seeing a lot of concern about uh, the dissemination of knowledge and materials related to these particular biological weapons. Uh, they conduct experiments on animals. They had special strains for military purposes. Um, the local residents were actually subject to repeated epidemics of these diseases that they were working on. It turned out that, for the most part, the winds blew south, which is why they chose it, but occasionally the winds changed directions and they had issues with the local population becoming very ill. Now, the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 had outlawed biological 
agents and sorry, chemical agents, chemical agents, and there is some overlap with toxins, whether they are chemical or biological in nature. So you do see some overlap between chemical conventions and biological conventions. Um, the, even though they had prohibited them, of course, during World War One, they were used uh, increasingly used in World War One. By 1918, one in every three grenades had chemical compounds in it. Okay, so if you think about that, one in every three, it was becoming so widespread. About 1.3 million people died from chemical weapons in the war. Those are the estimates. So just massive loss of life because of these chemical weapons. So, uh, so even though there were, there were some efforts following the war, the Treaty of Versailles uh, banned Germany, for instance, from developing biological weapons, uh, then basically all the losers, um, all of their treaties said you can't develop biological weapons, but nothing was stopping everybody else from developing biological weapons. So in June of 1925, we finally get the Geneva Protocol for the prohibition of the use in war of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases, and of bacteriological methods of warfare. We refer to this as the 1925 Geneva Protocol. Um, that entered into force in February of 1928. The United States did not actually ratify it. The Senate did not ratify it until 1975. Um, now, that protocol basically forbade the use of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases and of all analogous liquids, materials, or devices, as well as bacteriological methods of warfare. Um, now, importantly, it did not forbid the development, possession, storage, and transfer of these materials. It just said you may not use it during wartime. And so even though this protocol was adopted, countries started to develop their biological weapons program, also with the fear that others were doing the same thing. And so as a result, a number of the states who signed the biological weapons uh, protocol added a statement at the time of their signing saying, and if somebody else uses BW, we are released from any obligations under this protocol. So they, they reserved a second use, a right of second use, essentially, to use biological weapons, even as they signed onto this protocol. Uh, it also did not prohibit any domestic use of biological weapons. It simply said you may not use it against other states. So there were a lot of weaknesses in, in the protocol itself. Just looking substantive, substantively at it, basically what the protocol said is that each state party uh, will not develop, um, uh, take to retain these agents, basically. They will destroy their existing biological agents. Oh, sorry, this is in 72, when we finally get to the 72 convention. That's right. So in 1972, they're addressing the gaps, basically. So they said in 1972, okay, not just will we not use it in wartime, but we also will not develop these as weapons. We will not develop biological weapons. We will not uh, acquire, retain, produce, stockpile these weapons as well. So you can see where that's closing a gap in the 1925 Geneva Protocol. Uh, it, they also said they would destroy all their existing biological agents or toxins. They would also undertake not to transfer either knowledge or materials. And the, the language of Articles 2, 3, and 4 that I've put up is just paraphrasing, just so you get the basic idea of, of the provisions, that they're, they're going to destroy their biological agents, they're not going to transfer the knowledge, and they're going to take any necessary measures to prevent others from developing BW on their soil. Um, and so this convention was meant, uh, the, was meant to address the gaps in the 1925 um, uh, 25 protocol. Okay, so, yeah. Did the U.S. ratify that one? 1975, yeah. 
that wouldn't have been 75 as well. At the they same time, the they time. didn't both at the same time, up until then the Senate was refusing. Um, and so it was only in 75 that they ratified this one and the previous one. And for what it's worth, um, on the same day, Russia, Canada, US, UK all ratified it on the same day, March 26, 1975, which put it into force. Um, other questions? No? Okay. Um, okay, so what do you notice about these agreements? Like who is making these agreements? States, right? So, so this matters, right? So right now, BW in this worldview is something that states do when they fight other states for national security reasons, right, in wartime. Uh, and states make this agreement between each other. Okay, what changes with the end of the Cold War is the potential for sophisticated materials and scientific knowledge to proliferate, to basically proliferate beyond state control. The idea is that it could go to rogue states or it could go to non-state actors who could use it for political purposes. So again, this is not the first time we've seen disease used as a weapon. Rhode Island, as a, even as a colony, they had laws against the use of plague as a weapon because there was something called the grassures. They were, it was popular in Europe. They would take plague, rub it on the doorposts of rich people's homes, go into the homes, rob them when everybody died. Um, you know, Obviously, they were somehow immune from the disease because they had treated with it so much. So people who actually couldn't be affected by plague would go into the homes and rob them. So this was like organized crime of the you know, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. This is what they did. And so, what's that? Yeah, and there was the, the additional issue that they, it was also carried by fleas, right? Which, like, if, if you're not actually infected directly, either by contact to a skin or, or sores that you might have, and the fleas don't jump, right? So there are plenty of instances when plague actually doesn't transfer well between people. So unless you like rub up against the doorway and you know put it in a sore, and like you're not going to get it as well. So, um, so yes, plenty of instances of this. But this was. Uh, this was what crime did um, in the, at the founding. So it's not that plague was never, and if you look at the uh, Revolutionary War, the British passed out smallpox blankets, right, to try to decimate the Indian population, which they did, right? These are, and during the Civil War, there were efforts to poison the water using diseased pigs and diseased animals, right? Disease has been used before during wartime. Disease has been used by individuals. What's different is individuals using it for political ends, to try to kill lots of people for political purposes and having it be an individual or group or a non-state organization that is behind this. Okay, so in 1984, um, for instance, uh, we have uh, this person, all right. This is Chandra Mohan Jain. Uh, he uh, is an Indian mystic, a spiritual teacher. He's a professor of philosophy. Uh, <laughs> um, I studied philosophy, <laughs> but anyway, he's a professor of philosophy. Uh, he was opposed to religious traditions and basically what he viewed as static religions. He emphasized the importance of creativity and love and music and humor. Uh, and he's really, his thinking really influenced new age Western thought. He was one of the kind of thinkers behind this. Simultaneously, uh, he strongly opposed organized religion. Uh, he uh, was strongly opposed to socialism. Uh, he got a lot of attention. He was also opposed to Gandhi, so he got a lot of attention in India at the time. He also had a very open view of sexuality. Uh, he was called the sex guru at the time. Uh, it was often appended to his name whenever you see these international reports, like India Times reporting, it's, it has his name that says sex guru, right, after it. Um, well, in 1981, he decided to move to the United States. He moved to Oregon, in fact. He purchased about a 60,000-acre ranch, and he built an ashram. Uh, up in Oregon. That cult quickly grew to several hundred thousand 
people. It took over the local area, which was called Antelope. Uh, Antelope had a population of 75 people before hundreds of thousands of cult members moved there. He renamed it uh, Rajneeshpuram. And within a year of his arrival, uh, he started having disputes with the local land board. Has anybody been on a planning commission or a land board before? Right, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So I was on Sunnyvale. I was nice right. I was on this planning commission in Sunnyvale. It was awful. It was like awful. It kicked me. I was like, I'm never working for the government. It doesn't work. Um, uh, you, you just you can't have principles and serve on a planning commission. It just doesn't work. Um, but so, so what happened was the the cult wanted to expand and build all this stuff, and the local planning board was like, no. So the Rajneeshi said, okay, well what we'll do is at the next election for people onto the planning board, we'll just make everybody sick and then we'll show up and we'll vote and we'll vote our people in right that that was their aim in this particular instance um, so they did um, they basically spread salmonella in local salad bars there were a number of outbreaks of salmonella more than 750 people became ill. CDC initially thought that the pro problem was the food handlers in that particular area. It wasn't until about a year later when the Bhagwan himself, he came forward and said, hey, these people in my cult did this. He actually came to the authorities and told them that they had done it. So they started investigating the cult. They got warrants to look uh, into the facilities. Um, he was charged with immigration violations and deported. Uh, 21 countries refused to admit him. Nobody wanted him. Um, he finally went back to Pune, uh, the eighth largest city, I think, in India, and he uh, died there in 1990. So what did they find when they went into the cult? Well, they found a whole biological weapons facility, basically in this ashram, right? They found salmonella, they found a medical research laboratory, they saw that they had tried to weaponize HIV uh, virus, uh, they had obtained the salmonella from a Seattle scientific supply uh, house, and they realized that actually what they were trying to do was to keep people from being able to vote, which... Um, Today's the day to vote. Are you anybody from Virginia, right? This is your big voting day, right? This is this is the vote today. Think 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 what freedom you have. No salmonella. All right, go vote. Go vote. Um, okay, was this terrorism? It's not international terrorism, it's domestic, but I think if you have to say that it's political terrorism. It was done for the purpose of a political end, it was done for the purpose of you know. Who would have a counter argument? Who would, who would disagree with that? Who could make an argument in, in juxtaposition? Yeah, Anna. It was done for a political end, but it's not done to further a political ideology amongst outside of his group. It was definitely a criminal act, but I do, at least under the Canadian criminal code, I don't think Okay, that's one argument. That's one argument. Okay, so did it sow terror? No. Did they know, did anybody announce, we're doing this for a political end? For a year, they had no idea until the Bagwans secretly went to the police and said, these guys are using salmonella in my cult, right? <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what he was thinking, right? But, right, so, so, so what would the other argument look like? How would you, what, what is the argument this is not terrorism? Well, it's just basic crime. I think it's probably the right term. No, I think about it, yeah. It's just basic crime. I mean, they're, not, they're, not, they're not trying to sow terror or, or cause larger effects. Okay, so if it's not terrorism, who's in charge? Local law enforcement. Who said local law enforcement? I can't see, hand. I can't see. John, no, Jonathan? Yeah. yeah, local law enforcement. Right, local law enforcement would be in charge. All right, if it's terrorism, who's in charge? FBI. FBI's in charge, right? If it's a public health crisis, who's in charge? The, uh, CDC. CDC. 
right? So how we characterize that event changes who's in charge, and it changes the power that's afforded to them. Uh, if it's actually, if it's a public health event, CDC is not in charge. Who's in charge if it's a public health event? State versions? State and local public health. State and local public health. Our public health system is an inverted pyramid. It is built on state and local public health, and we'll get into the history of that. Public health is a 10th Amendment power reserved to the states. It is so firmly in the state's domain that for hundreds of years, only the states were responding to public health. It wasn't until the 20th century that you see the, the federal government starting to get involved. So public health is very firmly in the state domain. So if it's public health, it's a state and local issue. If it's a criminal act, it's state law enforcement, state and local law enforcement. But if it's terrorism, then it's the FBI. And if it's a biological weapons attack, potentially with another state behind it, then it's DOD, right? So we keep changing depending on how we characterize it. So one of the big questions in BW law is who's in charge and who gets to make that call? You know, you have the fox guarding the hen house problem or Nemo Eodex and Suicasa in more learned terms, right? Uh, nobody is to be a judge in his own cause. So you don't want to give the CDC the ability to say the CDC is in charge. You don't want to give the FBI the ability to say the FBI is in charge. Because then every event will be characterized as something where they're in charge and therefore their authority and their power grows. So you have this, this big question in BW issues. Now, one of the real concerns, as I mentioned after the wall came down, was whether the materials and knowledge would uh, proliferate from the former Soviet Union uh, to other countries. And so in 1993, Senator Sam Nunn, um, and by the wall coming down, I mean the Eastern European Wall, the wall descends the tree from Trieste in the Atlantic. This is Churchill's great address at Westminster College from Trieste in the Atlantic. You know, we have this wall descending. So the Iron Curtain has descended. Well, in, in the 80s, in the late 80s, when the wall disappears, there's this concern, well, what about all that material and knowledge? What's gonna happen to it? And so Senator Sam Nunn, who's a Democrat from Georgia, we have Richard Luger, who's a Republican, he's from Indiana, uh, and Pete Domenici, another Republican from New Mexico. So we have a bipartisan effort uh, by these senators to actually engage in something called the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. Uh, now this program was to assist the Soviet republics in securing initially their nuclear or their fissile materials, but then they expanded it in 93 to include biological agents and biological weapons. And they wanted to ensure that that knowledge actually didn't, uh, didn't actually dissipate, or not dissipate, but um, kind of flow around the world, that it actually wasn't given out to other countries and other individuals. So in 1996, we have legislation called the Defense Against Weapons of Mass Destruction Act. This is also known as the Nunn-Luger-Domenici Amendment. Uh, some people call it that. Um, in this statute, they gave the Pentagon the lead agency responsibility for all biological matters. That legislation gave it to DOD. DOD had to provide uh, certain expert advice to federal, state, and local authorities. Uh, regarding WMD, they had to provide training uh, for responding to the threat of WMD and uh, programs of testing and improving civil agencies' responses to WMD. Uh, you're all familiar with WMD, it's weapons of mass destruction. It's generally regarded as chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological materials, and sometimes large explosive devices as well, if there's an E added at the end. Those are all considered weapons of mass destruction. 
So Senator Luger commented in 1997, biological weapons, materials, and know-how are now more available to terrorists and rogue nations than at any other time uh, in history. Uh, this was the big concern. Now, broad concern about potential terrorist acquisition of this was punctuated by actual terrorist acquisition of this, and it wasn't limited to the United States. So uh, in Japan, uh, Shoko Asha, uh, Asahara uh, is uh, this individual. This is my favorite picture of him. He's levitating here. Can't really see. I love that picture. Um, so, so Shoko Asahara uh, started another cult. Uh, Om Shinrikyo. Shinrikyo is mean uh, supreme truth. Uh, this was this, this idea. It's a supreme truth, Om and Aleph. Um, by March of 1995, the cult's membership was about 20,000 people to 40,000 people around the globe. They had assets of about $1.5 billion, so a fairly wealthy cult. Uh, they collected it like through donations and tithes and the sale of religious materials that their members would buy. Um, they developed a very strong presence in Russia. Uh, they basically took Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and Christianity and took kind of elements of each of these religions. Uh, they said Nostradamus was a prophet. They considered he had a, a special position. The idea is that Armageddon is coming uh, and that it will destroy Japan through nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. Uh, and so this cult, uh, only these cult members will actually survive Armageddon. That was the basic idea of the, of, of the cult itself. Um, uh, Ashihara, he's a highly charismatic person. He's partially blind. He was born actually half blind. Uh, he claims to be the reincarnated Jesus Christ. Uh, so he's here, uh, and he's the first enlightened one since Buddha. Now, in June of 1994, Om Shinrikyo drove a converted refrigerator truck into the residential area in a neighborhood in uh, uh, Nagano. Uh, they killed eight people, and they injured 200 people when they released sarin. Uh, the police initially thought that it was the husband of one of the victims who had done it because they found some materials in his garage. Um, he had pesticide actually stored at his residence. It was not him. Uh, on March 20th, 1995, Om Shinrikyo had a second sarin release, this time on the Tokyo subway. They basically had five different trains on the subway system, uh, all of which I think were heading away from Tokyo at the time. They filled them with a chemical mix, wrapped them in newspapers, and then they had sharp umbrellas, which they poked. Uh, they poked the packages, and then it released the sarin on all of these trains. Uh, the attacks killed uh, 12 people. It permanently injured 50 people, and about 6,000 people had to seek medical assistance after the sarin had been distributed. When the police raided the cult's shrines, they found a large-scale chemical weapons facility there. It was outfitted basically with over-the-counter equipment. Anybody could get this type of equipment. It was um, very adept also at recruiting scientific engineers uh, and also scientists, biological scientists. Uh, they had experimented with botulinum toxin, with anthrax, with cholera, and with Q fever. Uh, in 1993, Ashihara had led a group of 16 doctors to Zaire in particular, where they were looking about bringing back samples of Ebola to try to weaponize Ebola as well. So it turned out that they had had several unsuccessful efforts to launch biological weapons attack. They had actually tried with many of these agents to launch biological attacks uh, in Tokyo. Now, the motive for the first attack was to kill three judges who were handling fraud charges against Ohm that had been brought by landowners. They didn't want the verdicts to be released. Is that an act of terrorism? What if they don't announce it? it doesn't matter. 
What if there's no demand? There's no demand made. Yeah, but um, if, if you know through intelligence or otherwise that they were trying to compel a certain result, I, I think you could argue that it was terrorist. So if the mafia decides in New York to kill a judge to prevent the judge from ruling in a case, is that terrorism or crime? Well, in this case, they just wanted to kill. The, their political view is Armageddon is coming, but they just wanted to kill the judge to keep him from issuing a sentence. So why would the mafia not be terrorism and that's terrorism? What's the difference? No, argue back. Argue back. <laughs> Give me a good argument back. Yeah. Conspiracy? Conspiracy. Why, why would that be any different in co-it crimes? They're planning to do some, they're planning violence. Says so the mafia. Well, thank you. Yeah. There's one aspect of terrorism that is killing innocent people. Because in other case, you have an uh, issue against the person you're killing. Whereas one of the aspects of terrorism, some of the definitions are you're killing people who you've got no interest in otherwise who are innocent just to meet any other demand. And in the case of the judge, you would be killing him because he's potentially doing something against. Okay, so you're distinguishing between targets. So there's a difference between a target, which is a target audience, and a target, which is the target of the attack, and a target, which is the political aim of the target. And in this case, in the case of the judge, you're saying, well, two of those are kind of meant, but it's not really the third one. But is that, is that really strictly accurate for the mafia, too? Like, if the mafia says, well, we're going to kill the judge, uh, is the judge you know, not innocent because he happens to be a judge? How is that any different for the mafia? The mafia, it is terrorism in the sense because the reason why I'm going to kill the judge is not just for this case. It's going to make every other judge understand that, hey, if you're going to convict one of my people, this is going to be your fate. So I think it is, a, it is political terrorism because it's meant to terrorize the population into doing my will, which is leave, leave my folks alone. Okay, Aaron? Or you just get around it by designating option repeal as a terrorist organization, and then you don't have to actually worry about the whole <laughs> is it terrorism or not. And what's the risk in that? Uh, you mean like a First Amendment risk? Yeah. For the U.S., it would be a First Amendment issue. Yeah, sorry, who said that? Luke, right, yeah. So for the U.S., you would have a First Amendment issue, which is why we have FTOs. We can designate foreign terrorist organizations, right? And under uh, different executive orders, we can actually freeze the assets, right, of these organizations. But we can't name U.S. organizations because of the right of, of association that we have in the United States under the First Amendment issue, okay? Um, okay. Uh, all right, we'll move on. These questions come back, though. So if this is a terrorist attack, who's in charge, right, if it's in the United States? Do you really want to name every time somebody is killed, the FBI is in charge? What happens to federalism? What happens to balance of power? What happens to constitutional questions about state police powers as reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment? You have enormous constitutional implications depending on how you characterize these particular events, which have legal consequences. They have very strict or very, very severe legal consequences that follow. Uh, now, there were a number of unsuccessful attacks in the United States as well. For instance, in 1995, we had a Rissen case here in the US. This was Douglas Allen Baker and Leroy Charles Wheeler in Minnesota. Uh, this was a little bit funny. One of the guy's wives actually walked into the police station uh, with, a, with a coffee can and opened up the coffee can, and there was a baby jar filled with powder. There was a little vial that was filled with green goo, which ended up to be aloe vera, like laced with some other chemicals, um, and gloves, and a little note, right? And 
And this is what the notes said. The notes said, Doug, be extremely careful. After you mix the powder with the gel, the slightest contact will kill you. If you breathe the powder or get it in your eyes, you're a dead man. Dispose all dis instruments used. Always wear rubber gloves and then destroy them also. Good hunting. Dis P.S. Destroy this note. Right? <laughs> so she had found this in her husband's workshop and went to the local police uh, with this information. And it turned out that there were two gentlemen uh, who were bent on destruction who had developed ricin from castor beans. Uh, turns out lots of information online about how to, how to make ricin. Very, very easy to make ricin from castor beans. All that information is out there. This was not a single case. And Larry Wayne Harris in 1998, uh, some of you might remember the case. He was a, he was a white separatist. Uh, basically, he was a born-again Christian. He predicted that biological attack would be carried out by domestic groups fighting for their heritage, traditions, and communities, causing devastated plagues like those in the book of Revelations. Uh, he urged US citizens to prepare, which included stockpiling weapons and learning how to use them. And then, to make his point, he tried to develop both plague and anthrax as a weapon. In fact, in the back of his car, he had a number of bags that said uh, weapons-grade anthrax on them. Um, uh, turned out they were not, right? It was kind of his self-decision uh, self, uh, to kind of make it like this was something bigger than it was. Uh, turned out it was not illegal at the time to have anthrax. It was not illegal. So they got him on mail fraud because he had obtained the anthrax by filling out forms uh, with a different name uh, and sending them through the postal system. So what happened was as these cases came forward, you start to see all these copycat cases. And so it kind of becomes trendy to engage in biological weapons uh, attacks or to threaten biological weapons attacks. So from about a dozen investigations uh, per year, suddenly in 1997, the FBI opened uh, 74 investigations related to the possible acquisition or use of chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological materials. Uh, and then in 1998, 181. So just a sudden explosion in the number of cases. Now, 80% of those cases were hoaxes, uh, but a significant number of those were actual attacks. And some of the hoaxes, like one of them, there was somebody who was supposed to turn up for a, um, a custody hearing, and she didn't want to see her husband, so she called in a biological weapons hoax to the courthouse just so that she didn't have to see her husband. You know, so some of the hoaxes were ridiculous. Some of them had more to them. There, was, there would be white powder. Somebody would open an envelope. White powder would come out, and there'd be a little note. And it turned out it was baby powder or something different. Uh, but there was an actual motivation, like a political motivation, a well-thought-out plan behind this. So by 1999, the Monterey Institute for International Studies uh, had a database of 415 <coughs> incidents, most of which occurred towards the end of the 20th century, in which terrorists had actually sought to acquire or use biological weapons. 415 incidents. That is before 9-11. That is prior to the attacks of 9-11 and Al-Qaeda's stated intent to use BW in the future backed by films of them testing biological weapons on dogs. These were found um, in, uh, when they went into Afghanistan. Then we have the anthrax mailings in the autumn of 2001. This further underscored the threat. Remember, five people died, about 22 people were injured in these anthrax mailings. The FBI called this Amerithrax, uh, that's the case name for it. That started September 18th of 2001. It was exactly a week after the 9-11 attacks. The first set of letters went out primarily to news outlets, to ABC, CBS, NBC, the New York Post, and the National Enquirer. Uh, then a little bit later, another set of notes went out, uh, particularly to Tom Daschle uh, and to Patrick Leahy. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, Daschle was the majority leader of the Senate, and Leahy was the chair of the Judiciary Committee at the time, so both in positions of authority uh, in the U.S. Senate. 
Leahy's letter was unopened. Uh, Daschle's letter was opened actually by an aide. Uh, this one was a much stronger strain. Both of them were the Ames strain, uh, which came from a particular cow in Texas in like 1981. Uh, and so it was traced back to US AMRID, which was the US Biological Weapons Facility. They had been the one developing the Ames strain. And so immediately the idea was this was an insider that was involved. Uh, there were a series of bad moves in the investigation. They kept thinking they had the suspect and they turned out to be innocent. Uh, and there's still question about whether they actually got the person responsible. So in light of all of these attacks and the actual acquisition and use, uh, there was a lot of fear uh, that was raised, especially when that second anthrax mailing had more refined spores. They initially thought it had been combined with smallpox because it was oozing when they actually looked at it under a microscope. It turned out it was actually a kind of resin that had been added to it. Uh, by 2002, uh, President uh, Bush said the gravest danger to freedom lies at the crossroads of radicalism and technology when the spread of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons along with ballistic missile technology, when that occurs, even weak states and small groups could attain catastrophic power to strike great nations. And so scholars did what scholars uh, always do. They just started writing. So if you look at the literature, it's like nothing, 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 and then there's like all this research right out there about biological weapons, biological weapons incidents. Now, part of the concern was it was becoming easier to launch a biological weapons attack. And, and a lot of that had to do with how available the scientific information was. The, the best example of this is the Australian mousepox case. Has anybody heard of the Australian mousepox case? No. Okay. It's a great, great, great little study in this, and it also played a key role. So in Australia, every six or seven years, there's a rodent infestation. You're Australian, right? Who's my Australian? There was, there was a rodent infestation in Australia every six or seven years, which had a huge impact on GDP because it would affect the crops. The rodents would, be, uh, would, would all be born. They would all eat the crops. It would affect production. It would affect the GDP of the country. And so some scientists had this idea, well, what we really should do, we don't want to wipe out all of our rodents because then we'll have diseases in Australia. So what we'll do is we'll just make it impossible for them to reproduce. And so we'll get a highly virulent disease, something that all the rodents will catch, and we'll just make this slight genetic alteration to the disease, and we'll say that, that it'll shut off their reproductive abilities. So they tested it on a group of, of uh, mice, and then they found that some of the mice had an autoimmune response to it, and it didn't affect them. So they made one more slight alteration to this disease, and they found that they had developed a disease with 100% lethality. 100% virility, 100% lethality. And the disease that they used for the vector was mousepox because it was, a, it was very, very virulent. And once they shut off the autoimmune response and they altered it not to reproduce, all the mice died from this. So it raised the question, what do you do if you find this? What, what would you do? Kalia what, Kalia, what would you do if you had found this? If you were the scientist and you found this, would you publish it? Remember, smallpox has killed more people in human history than any disease. 300 billion people, estimated over history, have died from smallpox. Would you publish mousepox with two simple genetic alterations? Would you publish that? Now, this took three feet of countertop and a basic degree in microbiology. You did not even need to have a master's degree in, in microbiology to do this experiment. And $3,000. $3,000 is what it cost. Would you publish it? Uh, I wouldn't. You wouldn't? Why not? 
Luke, what's your view? Um, I guess it depends on the journal in which I'm publishing, but I would. <laughs> so, okay. Like not inspire. You wouldn't put it in inspire. Depends on whether he had tenure. Well, no. No, because I mean, really, at the end of the day, it depends what the requirements of the journal were the, with respect to what I had to disclose. But would I be, would I publish the fact that you know I had discovered this, etc.? Yes, I would. But then I'd also go to the authorities because the idea is, I mean, exactly. if you don't, like, I mean, any scientist is thinking, well, if I don't do this, somebody else is going to do this. And if you're the first to do this, you want to get ahead of the curve and be able to put it into the proper hands of the people who know. So, I mean, it, 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 it's going to come out. It's just a question of how do you control the mechanism in which it comes out, which is the thinking with respect to the, the journalism. So, and also what you mean by publish. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, publish. <laughs> publish. So, like, Twitter, no, 140 words. <laughs> well, no, I mean, bad, it, bad well, disease. Do you yeah. make it public, or, <laughs> are you, or what are you actually disclosing in the journal? Yeah. Okay. So, what so is the argument for disclosure? Let, well, let's let's get out there regardless. Okay. One, it's going to get out anyway, and therefore what? Therefore, the authorities and and and, and, and other and, and presumably uh, uh, others should be made aware so they can work on perhaps vaccines or or, or whatever else. Okay. Those are two separate arguments. So one yeah. says the government needs to know so we can develop countermeasures. The other says this is a basic scientific discovery, we need more brains working on this to try to counter it because this could happen, right? Somebody could actually do this, yeah. right? And what's the counter argument to both of those for publication? Well, I mean, it's because now you publicize that it's possible and therefore you're going to encourage a whole bunch of people to try and weaponize it and do it in the other You're tipping your hand. You're saying, right. look, here's a great weapon. Right. If you really want to, you know, mess people over. But there's actually a counter to that. A scientist, are there any scientists here? No. Okay, so one of my colleagues, I was at Stanford at the time, one of my colleagues, he's one of the Jasons, he's a biologist, he's like, this is the worst disease ever, 100% lethality, no one's going to get it. It's going to burn out, it's going to die. What you want is you want a disease like the Spanish flu or like avian flu, right, with a 20 or 30% mortality because then everybody gets it and it spreads. But if everybody dies who gets it, eventually that disease is going to burn itself out. So, so some scientists say this is not a threat at all. So 100% lethal. What's that? Well, that would make it a great weapon because then you could target the location, kill those in the location. It's a good and counter. You don't have to worry about it spreading beyond. Yeah, that's so a good one. That's, yeah, that's a good, good counter. Andrew? Well, I guess I'm, just, I'm having a little bit of a confusion with what the actual utility of publishing is. Is the idea that once you have stumbled upon what is an extremely lethal disease, that you're, me, me being a scientist would say, oh my gosh, I've discovered something terrible. I need to publish so that people can prevent this from happening again. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like the original point was, the moral responsibility. It's yeah. like, okay, so now if this can be done, so because this took $3,000, three feet of countertop and like a basic degree, like yeah. anyone can do this. So when this came out, one of my colleagues, um, Larry Wine, uh, well, just afterwards, I'll talk about the anthrax, how this affected it at Stanford. Um, he uh, was worried that the milk supply was easy to poison. Uh, it was very easy to put like botulinum toxin in the milk supply. And to solve this security risk, it would cost milk producers two cents a gallon 
to actually solve this. They had lobbied Congress uh, not to change it. No matter how many scientists went forward and said, look, you need to secure the milk supply in America, they were resisting it. So another reason to publish is to force people into action. If this is a vulnerability, it actually forces people to do something. Because sometimes when you just let the government know quietly, or let the milk producers know quietly, or let the interested parties know quietly, nothing is done about it. But this will actually force action. So that's another argument that could be brought forward. Uh, well, in the event, they, did, uh, they told the government. And then the government did nothing. They told the Australian government. Uh, the government did nothing. Uh, and so they decided to publish it. And the article uh, came out, uh, this alarming article in the journal, The Expression of Mouse Interleukin-4 by a Recombinant Electromelia Virus Suppresses Cytolytic Lymphocyte Responses and Overcomes Genetic Resistance to Mousepox. <gasps> Everybody missed it, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, so, so where you published? They, they published in the American Society of Microbiology in, in one of the journals there. Um, so initially, there, there wasn't much conversation. Uh, but as you, as you will see here, uh, this was actually published in February 2001. And then in, on September 18th of 2001, we get the anthrax mailings. And so the White House called Ron Atlas, who was the editor for this series, that he runs the nine uh, biggest uh, microbiology journals in the world globally, called him into the White House and said, if you publish anything like this again, we will pass laws forbidding microbiologists from publishing anything that could be helpful to terrorists. Is that constitutional or not? Is that constitutional or not? Let's see, who hasn't spoken? Sarah. Constitutional or not? What do you think? Luke, you're the constitutional scholar. I'm not. <laughs> but I'm learning, as you can see. <laughs> what do you think, Sarah? Why not? What's the case law on this? So if I, uh, uh, if I am suddenly a mad nuclear scientist and I develop a nuclear weapon in my garage, uh, is that classified? Or can I tell people about that? Now. What? You can actually classify it after you've done it. We've done that before. They took technology that people were on their own developed. So it wasn't related to like uranium enrichment. The government went out and nabbed it and classified it. So under the Atomic Energy Act, anything I come up with is classified from birth. Anything in my brain, if I figure out how to build a nuclear device, I cannot tell anybody about that. That is classified from birth. I can't tell my mother. I can't tell my children. I can't, you, once I build it, I can't, I, I can't do anything with it. It's classified from birth. So the progressive case what is birth? and the, what's that? Like birth, the idea? The idea, the building, the transmission, the knowledge. So I can't, all together. All of, any of that. I cannot tell anybody about it. I can't say over a pint, you know, uh, with, uh, with Professor Graham, I can't say, oh, hey, I came up with this great uh, device, as opposed to the, the gun barrel model or the implosion device. I had this new design for a nuclear weapon, and it uses U-235, but here's how we can actually develop U-235 to put in this device, right, or plutonium or whatever it might be. I cannot. So it turns out that the history of case law on this is scientific speech can be limited. Yeah? Jonathan? Yeah, I, I, I'm going back to the, I, don't, I can't remember whether it was the nation or wanted to publish how to build a nuclear weapon. That would be the... That, that would be the yes. Example. Yeah, 
and the court said the court said and and also you know that nifty things that go boom do you remember do you remember this case do you guys remember these cases from First Amendment law? This was actually a CIA put out this manual called Nifty Things That Go Boom that you would blow yourself up if you tried to build something uh, from this book. Um, it was actually published, or the Hitman Manual, the Hitman Manual case. What's that? The Anarchist Cookbook, right, or the Hitman Manual. Uh, it turned out it was written by a Florida housewife who was pretty bored about how to be a hitman. And then when they tried to hold her culpable or the publisher culpable, there were all these First Amendment questions about it. The problem is that scientific speech was actually addressed in an atomic setting. What's the problem with doing it in biology? Is it the same thing? It's much more dual use in a study of biology than atomic. What do you mean dual use? Well, because you can be covering a lot more things. There's a lot of health issues and things that, that are going to be covered in biology. <coughs> that just simply, the atomic is so much more narrowly, narrowly tailored. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, basically civilian is about it, and occasionally people do come up with a new technology and things like that, and we've got to declassify it, but it's not as, biology is so much bigger and so much more, so much less narrowly tailored to the threat. Okay, so, so that's, that's one, although you could say energy, and you know, like there, there are all other, other ways in which you can use nuclear that isn't just for bombs, right? You can yeah, say, well, well it affects all these other ones, other, yeah, other areas but, as well. But every Yeah, so the issue is, is microbiology is not just, and you say it's bigger, so it covers more things. It's also incremental. So if I'm a scientist and I discover something, I publish it. And then somebody else tries to recreate that experiment to see if I'm right. And it's these incremental advances. And every advantageous incremental advance can also be disadvantageous if it goes a different way. Much, much harder. So is, it, is the genetic sequence for influenza, is that a national security threat? Is the genetic sequence for any disease or particular vaccinations. Is that a national security threat? And you see the risk that, that occurs, particularly in the realm of biological weapons. Um, with that said, this is a problem. This knowledge and information is now out there. And I mentioned synthetic biology at the beginning, the idea that you can take a single cell from a rat's tail, reduce it to an egg, mate it with itself, and create a new being. We are in a new world. And this information is rapidly proliferating. Um, this is one of my favorite. Uh, books that's widely available. This is Biological Weapons and Terrorism, basically how to build them. Uh, all yours for $29.95 from Amazon.com. Okay, so the United States was getting more and more concerned about these naturally uh, occurring diseases. Um, at the same time, we had, uh, sorry, not naturally occurring, about biological weapons. At the same time, we had naturally occurring diseases that were causing uh, greater and greater concern as well. So the first one, I'll just mention two of them. The first one was avian influenza, H5N1. This emerged in Hong Kong in 1997. It infected 18 people. It killed uh, six more individuals. Uh, that disease very quickly spread. It became epizootic. Um, it was uh, also panzootic. It was transferred between species and between uh, animals and human beings. It was identified on multiple continents in lots of different animals. It was in tigers. Um, I want to say lions and tigers and bears, oh my. But it was like eagles and tigers and cats and pigs and aquatic and domesticated birds, as well as human beings. Uh, now, initially, it was not transferable between human beings, but then there was evidence uh, that rapid mutations were occurring, and it could quickly become a much more virulent strain. Uh, with the contact between the humans and animals, so 
it, it, it turned out that at the beginning, only a few of the people who came into contact with animals were getting it. Uh, as it developed and these mutations were occurring, more and more people who came into contact with infected animals were actually contracting the disease. Now, initially, nobody took this very seriously. It was only scientists uh, who were concerned. Uh, this was one of the kind of public cartoons kind of mocking the scientists uh, about their concern. Uh, but pretty soon that changed. In 1997, we had most of the deaths that occurred in people older than 13 years old. But by 2006, the fatality rate, the fatality rate for people 13 years and younger was 90%. So an enormous fatality rate uh, carried in this. Now, uh, the disease dissipated, but there was substantial concern. The Spanish flu, uh, which had killed, it was also avian in origin. It was an avian flu initially. Um, it it uh, affected about 1 billion people worldwide. It killed between 50 and 100 million people. Uh, the rate of uh, virulence, the, I'm sorry, the rate of uh, yeah, virulence or fatality um, was 25 to 5%. So suddenly you have this disease that has such a high fatality rate. That's why the scientists were so concerned about it. They paled in comparison to H5N1. The overall rate was 60%. But if you were 13 years or younger, it was a 90% death rate. And so scientists were like, wait a minute. This is deeply, deeply problematic. Uh, there was a second outbreak, which proved uh, equally concerning at the time. This was severe acute uh, respiratory syndrome, SARS. Uh, that's caused by the same virus that causes the common cold. It was the same virus, actually. We just some changes in it. Uh, it hit uh, Guangdong province in southern China in 2003. Within a few days, it had spread to Hong Kong, uh, and then to Singapore and Hanoi, and then as far away as Toronto. Uh, now, that was transferred between humans by a small number of who were called uh, super spreaders. These are people who came into contact with lots of people. They themselves did not fall ill with it, but they came into contact in travels with lots of people, and then all those people with whom they came, or many of those people with whom they came into contact, fell ill with the disease itself. Uh, within uh, a few months, some 8,000 people in 29 different countries had contracted SARS. About 800 people had died from it. Uh, now, like the biological weapons threat, there was a sudden explosion in the academic literature on how to address or, uh, naturally occurring disease. All right, we're going to move into the law here, um, but I want to just give you a taxonomy. I'm not going to go into all of these laws. Here are the areas where we saw a sudden explosion in the law. This is just a taxonomy or typology, a way of thinking about it. We saw on the international side, we saw a sudden increase in treaties and agreements trying to restrict the use and development of biological weapons, as well as storage and transfer of, of biological materials. We saw sanctions regimes coming into place. We saw export and import controls. On the domestic side, we see the sudden explosion in terms of criminal law measures uh, regarding the use, development, possession, transfer of these materials, as well as teaching individuals. It's illegal to teach individuals how to use BW. Um, we saw the introduction of inchoate crimes, so conspiracy and attempt uh, and uh, solicitation actually were introduced uh, through this period in order to address BW. We saw registration requirements in the uh, terms of the agents and the toxins, which research projects were approved, which labs or facilities could handle biological diseases, which individuals could handle the diseases, and who was given visas to come to the United States to work on this material. Uh, we also saw an explosion in environmental law provisions. Uh, we saw changes in early detection systems and new laws that went into place in consequence management. And then 
this euphemism, which, uh, which is what I'll finish up our conversation today on, is social distancing measures, which is a euphemism often for quarantine and isolation, but also includes masking, shutting down facilities, preventing transportation systems from running to try to prevent people from coming into contact uh, with each other. Uh, so here are some of the laws. Uh, we had nothing on the books before 1989. Nothing. We had not signed the Biological Weapons Convention. We didn't have anything that made it illegal to have biological agents or materials or to use them. Nothing. So 1989, we find the first legislation that comes forward. That's it. So, so picture nothing and then this, right, all of a sudden. So in 1989, the, this um, Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act had implemented the biological uh, weapons, uh, the toxin uh, uh, convention. It, it actually took the BWC and it put it into US law. Uh, it added prohibitions with respect to biological weapons. It only criminalized using BW as a weapon. That's all it did. You just couldn't use BW as a weapon. Um, you couldn't possess it for other than peaceful purposes. So if you either were using it as a weapon or you developed it to use as a weapon, you couldn't have it. Um, so you had to have criminal intent. And CDC was very careful at the time to say this doesn't criminalize possession. It only criminalizes the use or the intended use of this as a weapon. And they, they actually issued guidance at the time saying, look, you can, you can have it, you just can't intend to use it as a, as a weapon. Then in 1996, with the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, we see the first generation of select agent rules. So now what they did was they, they went through and they said, okay, here are the agents, and they were the same agents that Russia had developed, that the United States had developed, Canada and the UK, the same agents that these countries had developed uh, during World War II and the aftermath of World War II. Those agents were now select agents. And they were on a list. And in order to gain access to that list, you had to pass, uh, you know, pass certain procedures in order to gain access to that. It was a select agent uh, regulatory framework. Um, now, until uh, 2002, the framework only applied if you were shipping agents, if you were shipping them. You could carry them in your pocket. You could, uh, in fact, that's, that's like a, a method of delivery, CIT, it's what it's called, carrier in transit, I think, um, where you take a vial of like plague and you stick it in your pocket and you get on a plane. You could do that. You just couldn't ship it through the mail, right? You could have it in your lab, but you couldn't actually send it to somebody else, right? That's what that statute did. Then in 1998, we had the Chemical Weapons Implementation Act. Uh, this is the first comprehensive document that addresses bioterrorism. Of course, remember that toxins and BW actually overlap at some point, and so this actually started to address some of the biological uh, agents um, at the time. Then in 1999, we have criminal penalties introduced for distributing information on explosive materials. Uh, this is uh, related to WMD. So if you use WMD, remember at this time, all of these incidents are happening that I went through before. We have Larry Wayne Harris. We have uh, the Rissen case. We have Om Shinrikyo. We have all of these. We have, um, we have the Rajneeshis in Oregon. And so as these events are happening, the laws are being introduced to try to criminalize this type of behavior. Uh, then we have uh, criminal penalties. Then on 9-11, the same day that 9-11 occurred, CDC sent an alert to state and local governments that said there might be biological weapons involved in this attack. Stay on the alert and let us know if anything comes across that there's BW also involved in this particular attack. So with the 2001 USA Patriot Act, Section 817 of that act created penalties for unauthorized possession or transfer. And that's what shifts it over. Before, you had to have the intent, the criminal intent. After 9-11, you don't need intent. Simple possession of any of these agents 
or transfer of these agents is enough to fall afoul of the law. It's now criminal penalties apply. Marlene? Was the U.S. creating like gas cash for civilian use like during this time for protection? No. Why not? Um, in Israel, they have a very developed system of gas masks and they worry about the attack and they distribute it to the entire population and they do training in schools to teach the kids. Like, I don't know if they actually work in the United States, but at least it gives you an impression that they work for a business like that. Yeah, yeah, like a prophylactic kind of. Um, no, the, the, um, so, so the, the, there, there's nothing stockpiled. There's no uh, emergency, you know, there's no biohazard suits. There's no, which masks wouldn't be sufficient, right, for this. You actually need biohazard suits. You have to have, like, uh, stations, you know, for washing. You have to have, like, all these other things that would affect it. None of that was stockpiled or developed. So that, that all goes into the consequence management. And now that they've, they've started to build up in terms of uh, what resources are available, for certain pockets of the population, there are certain measures that can be taken. They don't have anything like it. And part of the difference is Israel is a much smaller country, much fewer number of people. You know, it's a much smaller land area. The United States is, you know, 3,000 miles coast to coast plus Alaska and Hawaii and, you know, so many people. There's nothing like that here. So there was none of this idea that they would distribute to the entire population. And under a much greater threat, a real threat. What, Israel? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, Okay, so, uh, so so we shift over from it, you needing a criminal intent to just the possession and transfer. And can you remind me, what time do we end this session? 2.30. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, okay, then in 2002, uh, this is, uh, we basically um, have the second generation of select agent rules that goes into place with the 2002 legislation um, that you see here. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go through all of these. Uh, suffice it to say, like, there's... There's a lot going on, right, in terms of the biological. And these are, just, these are just examples. I did not actually put up all of the laws uh, that have exploded. I just wanted to give you an idea of the flavor of going from nothing to all of this to deal with biological weapons. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah. just to keep straight, so what this was doing as opposed to what the, the Biological Weapons Convention was ratified in 1975, that was just don't create biological weapons. This is prohibiting the agents and also regulating on a domestic mm -hmm. level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So remember that, um, I'll just go back real quick uh, to this slide here. Um, so the, the international agreement, that was the treaty up here. This is all this stuff goes into place, right? All of this, this, this didn't exist before really 1996, 97. And then after 9-11, we see this every year, we're getting biological weapons statutes that are being passed in the United States. Um, and the, the articles that I assigned for the class go into some of the detail on this in terms of some of those articles, some of those laws that have been passed. Um, we also see a sudden explosion in policy documents, right? So you see HSPD-5, HSPD-10, you see this national strategy for Homeland Security um, and the Homeland Security Council. You have the national response plan and the framework. Uh, you have the 2002 national strategy to combat WMD. You have a pandemic influenza implementation plan. Do we have any Brits here? Anybody from UK? No, it's really interesting. So our pan flu plan, says that we will quarantine people. We say hundreds of times, we're gonna quarantine people and here are the mental health effects and here's what's gonna to happen to the garbage and basic sewage services and so on. In the UK, they released it six months uh, before or after ours, I forget, six months either side of ours, one side of ours. And um, in theirs, they say they will not use pandemic, uh, they will not use quarantine uh, because it's ineffective. They're, they're absolutely not gonna use quarantine. So, and, and I'll talk about that in just a moment as to why they don't use it and, and we plan to use it. It's not at all clear that you have to use quarantine in these circumstances, but that's our plan uh, in the event that you have these. And there are many, many other documents. You have HSPD, um, 
uh, HSPD-7, uh, HSPD-8. You have uh, all these other ones, PPD-2 from Obama, PPD-8. Like, all of these policy documents just start pouring uh, out of the government. Um, on the quarantine side, uh, we also see the introduction of new provisions that make it possible for the federal government to quarantine individuals. Uh, the way it works in the United States is we have an executive order. The executive order lists the diseases that are quarantinable. So the statute says that the president must issue an executive order with the diseases that are quarantinable. SARS and influenza were added to this uh, by, president by President Bush. They were added to the list. Uh, the other diseases are uh, cholera, diphtheria, uh, infectious tuberculosis, plague, smallpox, yellow fever, um, viral hemorrhagic uh, fevers, um, and then these additional ones that, that, that were added to it, influenza and SARS. Uh, then what happens is you go to the regulatory environment, and that's uh, 42 CFR 70 and 71, and that says exactly how CDC is going to put these into place. Now, CDC has thrice issued new regulations uh, under 42 uh, CFR. Uh, they just put the last one into place in March of this year. So it is a newly updated regulatory environment for quarantine. Just as a view of the institutional landscape here, uh, these are the entities that deal with biological weapons responses. Um, now, the, the salient point to take from the, and these are just examples of all of the entities within each agency that have responses. The problem is it's not at all clear at the margins exactly who is in charge at which point. Uh, and this is deeply problematic. So if you look at HSPD-5 and HSPD-10, uh, for instance, they say, well, HHS has the lead for public health emergencies. Um, and CDC has a lead for determining global quarantine, when to actually enact global quarantine. But DHS has a lead for coordinating all domestic uh, public health effects from a biological weapon. Okay, so who's in charge, right, at this point? Uh, FEMA, within DHS, is supposed to be in charge in the event that you have a Stafford Act declaration. In fact, you can read the statute that the, that the administrator of FEMA, they're not a director, they're administrator, has more authority than the secretary of DHS. Now, the secretary's office claims that they have the authority to coordinate in a Stafford Act declaration, and the FEMA administrator says, no, you don't, we do. So even within the same organization, there's conflict over who's in charge. Um, yeah, ju uh, just a sec. Let me, let me call that Colette. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, Kalia. I Yeah, I've never seen, like, a model based on the Russian czar is a good one, right? <laughs> like, whenever everyone's like, we need one person in charge. Really? Okay. Um, uh, really? Uh, no, you don't, right? Uh, you, you actually don't need just one person in charge. And it's not clear. So, so for instance, you know, the, uh, the NSC, the, the, the advisor for uh, national security and the advisor for homeland security, under, under uh, HSPD-5, they're both in charge, and so is the secretary of homeland security. That's going to work. Yeah, that's going to work really well, right, when you have, like, these competing institutional needs. Um, and one of the problems is, is that it's not clear what kind of an event it is. So if all of a sudden, like SARS is a great example, was that a BW attack? You might not know, right? And your response mechanisms might be very similar regardless. You know, you want CDC to be part of that response. You want FEMA to be part of that response, people who do consequence management. But then if you start allocating authority to DHS and to the State Department and to the FBI and to DOD, all of it gets very confusing. And so in the biological weapons realm, uh, you have a particularly pronounced 
lack of clarity over who takes the lead at what point. And if you read the documents, it'll look very clear at first, and then as soon as you come up with a scenario, it actually comes down to hard institutional pressures against each other, personality, you know, efforts to like outmaneuver each other, and it's a very, very messy situation. It's not at all clear. Except the president can designate them as the primary, in which case, under the Stafford Act, yeah. So, so it's actually not as cut and dry as you're as you're suggesting. Yeah. The president put me in charge if he wanted to. That goes without saying. But the default position that the team is taking, that they that default gets gets to be in charge, is just contrary to the Homeland Security. But this is Nemo Iadex and Suakasa, right? Like you don't want the fox guarding the hen house. You don't want you know you. Nobody can be a judge in their own cause. So if FEMA gets to make the call of who's in charge, of course FEMA's going to say we're in charge. And if sec the Secretary of Homeland Security gets to make the call, then of course the Secretary is going to say I'm in charge, right? And if if the advisor for national security gets to make the call, then the advisor for national security, well, yeah. APNSA, is going to be in charge, the right? FEMA is they were put at DHS, so they actually do have a boss called the Secretary of Homeland Security, and he gets to subsume their he or she gets to subsume their their powers if that's what they choose, which the president doesn't want. The other thing about quarantine is that, I mean, the federal government's powers are still limited to interstate commerce and are still limited to international. So, so really, the, 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 the big power in quarantine is still to this day is the state and local. And we do quarantine people more often than you think, because what happens is we're very good at monitoring people that come in the country. And there are people that have things like you know, uh, bacterial or like antibiotic-resistant TB that aren't supposed to fly, and they're on no fly list. And occasionally, the, the government will screw up and they'll let the guy fly. And CBP grabs them at the airport that we're supposed to be on the plane, and then they put them in quarantine, but the thing is, who pays? Yeah, actually, so the... So it's like, if we only have limited quarantine authority, but then if you put them over to the states, the states don't want them because they don't want to have to pay for quarantine. It's a lot of money. Yeah, and actually, spending clause is how they got to actually have a role in quarantine in the first place. Is in yeah. the early 20th century, it was through the spending clause because it was roundly rejected as a commerce clause power. Um, and actually... Uh, Gosh, we're running out of time. Let me, I'll, I'll run through that just, just, just very briefly because I think it's very important to understand precisely the point that John is raising, which is state and local government are in charge. I would add to your point that the international component. So all of our laws at the border are meant to keep people out, uh, not keep people in. Yeah. Um, and we have a public health system that's built on voluntary acquiescence, right? So you go and you get your vaccines, you know, because you think it's good, although there's this whole anti-vaccine movement, right, going on right now. Um, but it's built on voluntary compliance. And what ha happened with Andrew Speaker a few years back was his, you know, his dad worked for CDC. I mean, can you imagine? Like, so it's not like he didn't know the risks of traveling with drug-resistant TB. But he got on an airplane, and it was like comedy of errors as he walked through the airport. They watched him. They watched him walk through the airport. DHS was there. State and local government was there. And they said, well, whose jurisdiction is he in right now? And as he comes into the airport, well, he's in the local jurisdiction. And local people said, well, we don't have the power to just like stop him from walking through our part of the airport. And then he gets into the state jurisdiction. Then he got into the federal jurisdiction. And they looked at the laws, and they didn't have a credible reading that said that they could actually keep him here. And so he got on the plane and went to Italy in full knowledge, with the government's full knowledge that he was leaving. And that's because throughout US history and throughout every country's history, <laughs> quarantine and the apprehension of individuals with disease is used to keep people out, not keep people in. And what this did was it brought HHS and CDC um, in, in, into conflict, really, with our international obligations under many conventions dealing with uh, public health, the World Health Organization itself. It's very, it's, it's a problem that we don't have good solutions to. Like, let's say we have a pandemic 
a dual citizen in Israel. I'm like, screw it. I'm going to Israel. I'm getting out of here. And Israel's going to take me. I'm an American citizen. How can you stop me from leaving the country? Yeah, you can't. You can't. I, I, I actually did that in Israel. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, so yeah, they can't. They can't keep you. Well, I don't know Israeli law. In the, in the United States, they can't keep you here. And the, the price for that would be giving up a voluntary system. So Marty Cetron, who's head of global quarantine at CDC, so I've, I actually have gone down to CDC to help review their programs and look at them. He's dead set against it because so much more public health, this is the tail wagging the dog, right? Do you really want to change the entire public health system to address this very narrow, very unlikely, high consequence, but very, very unlikely threat versus all public health. And CDC's take on that and, and Global Quarantine's take on that is no. This other health stuff is much more important. We don't want it to become subject to political control. Yeah, Russell? Yeah, thank you. When you still have this, while you have this sub institutional landscape, so when you said the uh, very interesting, you know, her statement here, it's not, as all, not at all clear um, at the intersections and borders of all of this landscape who would be in charge of jurisdiction make decisions uh, depending on the danger scenario. Um, if there were, let's say, God or somebody you know outside said, "This is the scenario," and described it all, would it then be clear? In other words, are all the missions and jurisdictions and descriptions of who's in charge of what sufficiently clear that the problem is only ever describing the situation? No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, I, I use this every year for our scenarios for the sim. We always have a have either BW or public health. Uh, crisis that, that emerges because it's not clear and a lot of it comes down to institutional uh, pressures and bargainings and po politics and it's really interesting because uh, actually going back John to your point uh, my students who go to FEMA and meet with the administrator administrator's like I'm in charge and my students who go to DHS and meet with the people on OGC and the, office, um, uh, the general counsel office there they say oh well DHS is in charge right and people who go to FBI are like you must be kidding me like we're the investigatory power we get to tell CDC what to do they have to do the epi stuff for us and CDC says no actually state and local governments in charge unless they're uh, unless actually they need our help in which case we play this really important supportive role for them because we rely on them for and then State Department says well no 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 if this is an international incident like we, we're the lead under HSPD 9 right or 10 right we're the lead under HSPD 10 and DOD says you're kidding me right like if it's another country we're in charge right and then the students all come back and they're completely confused right and then I say yes that's it <laughs> that's it you know that's how it works that's how it works okay I'd like to just move on um, real briefly to these observations um, Catherine yeah Yeah, so um, uh, this was a great case. Is anybody here from OLC at the time? OLC was just like all up in arms because they were like trying to figure out like what the law was on this because it was like a complete mess because state and locals have the lead. Once you leave the port of entry, it's state and local government who makes the call actually on this. Um, and, and it depends then on state and local law. So we found that some states had pretty liberal jurisdictions in the sense like they just asked the people to report in and keep to themselves, right? And other states were like, no, you have to stay in your, in your home. Well, it turns out that from the founding of the country, local towns had laws where they could exclude, forget equal protection and you know, privileges and immunities, right? Like they could exclude anyone or anything based on disease. 
any town in, in the United States could at the founding, right? The colonies could before them, then any town could at the founding, then the states could. They can exclude people, they can constrain people, they can put them in either cordon sanitaire, which is where you draw a line around an area and everybody's in that area, or they could do it by individual quarantine or isolation. Um, and you, you all know the difference between quarantine and isolation? Yeah, so isolation, you're sick, right? And you don't want you in contact with other people. Quarantine, you've come into contact with somebody who's sick, and so they want to restrict your movement so you don't carry the disease to others, although you're not actually symptomatic at that point. Um, so that's a distinction between them. And so state and local government gets it. So what happened with Ebola was they came back, and Texas did it one way, and New Jersey did it a different way, and New Hampshire did it a different way, and everybody's like, what's going on? What's the risk? This is a huge risk to us. And the, the CDC was saying, look, we can't do this, right? You have to do this, state and local government. And in the meantime, the federal government is saying, CDC, you have to do something. You have to do something. And they said, look, we can't and at, at this point do something about that. So, um, so I'll just end with these four observations. Um, first, uh, biological weapons and naturally occurring disease, they are increasingly linked in our law in our regulations, in our statutes, our regulations, and our policy documents. They are increasingly linked. Um, and you can see why, right? If, if, if I get sick from pandemic influenza, it might look no different than getting sick from an influenza deliberately spread by a bad person, right? Who's actually trying to do bad things. So you might have the same types of treatments that would occur in both of those cases. So what's happening is these are becoming increasingly linked. And part of it is also a coincidence uh, in history that we've had all these individuals who have access to BW and all these pandemic diseases occurring within the same kind of five to 10 year period. And that's kind of kaleidoscoped this into one incident. Um, and it's not just a public health problem. It's actually seen as a national security risk. This matters. This matters that we're seeing it as a national security risk, not as public health. Right, the second point to make is isolation and quarantine are increasingly central to the government's response. So as I said in our pan flu plan, we mentioned it hundreds of times how we're going to isolate and quarantine people. The UK won't. They have, they have lots of... Uh, there's also certain path dependence, but there's, there's some historical reasons. And one of the articles that I had assigned for today goes into detail as to why the US and the UK have very different approaches to this. Uh, but this matters because this affects local public health. So uh, going back to your point, um, sorry, I can't see, what's your name? Catherine. So going back to your point about uh, state and local government, there are constitutional questions on the line here, right? There, there's a reason state and locals have it. So if this is a national security concern, we're taking power away from the states and moving it to the federal government. Um, uh, third, we're seeing growing attention on the use of the military to actually impose quarantine and isolation. This is a new thing. Um, in England, King Henry VIII used the military to impose quarantine, but as the constitutional structure changed, it moved over to the Privy Council, and then uh, from the Privy Council down to state and local government. So in the UK, there is no quarantine. There is no nationwide quarantine power in the United Kingdom. Here, we've gone the opposite direction. It was a local, very intensely local, only towns and colonies had it, then it became state power. Then in the 20th century, through the spending clause, we saw the federal government gain control of quarantine stations. And then since 9-11, we've seen increasing discussion of the role of the military in conducting quarantine and isolation operations. Um, uh, and the final point is, is just the real danger of the dog, of the tail wagging the dog here, uh, which is when we deal with public health threats, which kill you know hundreds of thousands of people from all of these other diseases, do we really want to take all disease and put it in a national security framing, which actually expands the national security infrastructure at the expense, if you have limited resources, at the expense of public health? So CDC's budget 
is ridiculous. It is ridiculous what they have to work on. And if you compare what's available to them versus what's available to DOD, where BW is such a lower likelihood event, high consequence, high political visibility, but much lower likelihood, and CDC has to run on a, on a shoestring. Is that really the world we want to be in? Is that where we want to be as a policy matter? Um, I have run over slightly, uh, so shall I leave it at That's that? Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Thanks.